Welcome back to FinTech Insider Focus in association with Visa. In this show, we take a burning question from the financial services industry across the globe and really put it under the microscope with explainers, expert panels, and in-depth interviews, all to bring the global community into focus. Today, I am joined again by my FinTech Insider Focus co-host, Matt Wood, who is the Head of Digital and FinTech Partnerships, Asia Pacific for Visa. How are you doing today, Matt? Doing good, David. Very good. How about you? Pretty good, pretty good. Busy day, busy day, busy, busy year. I'll be honest with you. Twenty three has just disappeared, but it's uh, it's all good stuff and it's all good fun, which is which is nice. But uh, so in this second part of our focus on the question, can APAX travel sector spur on its financial services? One, well, if you haven't heard the first part of this conversation, go find it wherever you found this podcast and listen to our panel discussion with Utrip Cecilia Chu and Matt Baxby from Revolut Australia. We we spoke about the travel sector, the financial services industry, and, and how those two things are connected in APAC, and the challenges of lockdown, everything that happened with COVID, and how the industry has pivoted, really, in the face of that uh, really odd period that we had there. But Matt, maybe to, to recap, I mean, why is the the region so integral for, for Visa? I mean, uh, it, it seems obvious to say it's uh, a high growth one and, and lots and lots of people with lots of opportunities, but, but it seems like there's just such an amazing th- amount of things really happening in the area. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it's high growth, of course. It's also incredibly diverse and therefore... Um, it's not always an easy region to do business in when you're, you know, running business or, um, you know, running enterprise that covers regions, covers markets, covers borders. And so this notion of getting cross-border payments, whether that's for travel, money movement, um, you know, businesses or consumers, getting that uh, absolutely right and as best as it can be is something that we really spend a lot of time focusing on. Um, you know, we covered a lot of ground in that conversation, didn't we? Um, but you know, if I could get to the nub of uh, the nub of what you know, I think we we sort of drew out was that the main point to restate, I think, is that making payments across borders, any type of payment, whether I'm you know there in person uh, or moving money between countries or paying suppliers, whatever it is, making payments across borders is still way more difficult than it needs to be. Hundred percent, and uh, it is an amazing sort of tapestry of different systems across all of those different geographies, isn't it? And uh, helping organizations navigate those is uh, no small feat, is it, in that way? But I mean, I was really struck to hear the almost the pivots that we saw from both organizations, uh, you know, really in terms of customers' needs changing overnight and and them really having to react. It's um, it's an amazing thing to see, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, both, both uh, Matt and Cecilia spoke, um, you know, they, they had great stories to tell about how like fundamentally their product roadmap shifted in many cases overnight, um, but also to turn that into a real positive where their sort of primary um, you know, proposition, if you like, dried up overnight. Um, they found their customers interacting with their product in an entirely new way. And in fact, in Cecilia's case, um, you know, has essentially built a whole new business line around uh, supporting a different need of, of their customer base that they didn't really even know they had. Yeah, it's amazing. In uh, signs of adversity, you've got to either panic or pivot, right? And uh, and uh, they both did that incredibly well. So in this second part of the show, we're sitting down with a founder in APAC to dive into the weeds a little bit more and offer a different perspective. 11FS's own David Barton Grimley was lucky enough to grab some time with Pranef Sood, who is the general manager for Amir at 
Airwallex for a really, really interesting chat. You'll hear that after a short message from Visa. Don't go anywhere. Visa's fintech fast-track program is streamlining the onboarding process for fintechs, enabling them to gain access to Visa's powerful capabilities and network. Visa and their enablement partners help fintechs launch and scale cards, virtual credentials, and disbursement programs. To learn more, visit partner.visa.com. I'm David Barton Grimley, Global Strategy Director of Embedded Financial Services here at 11FS, and I'm delighted to talk to so many amazing people from across the industry. As mentioned, it's great to be joined on Fintech Insider Focus by Pranav Sud, GM for EMEA at Airwallex. How are you today? I am very well, David. Thank you for having me on the show. Awesome. It's a pleasure. So for our international audience, can you give us a little bit of an overview about yourself and your background? Yeah, absolutely. So as uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, I run our business across EMEA. Uh, So we have offices in in London, in Amsterdam and in Vilnius in in Lithuania. Uh, I'm responsible for everything we do in in market, both commercially, but also non-commercially. I've been here about a year. uh, And before that, I was actually at another business uh, called GoCardless for around five years, uh, working on a bunch of stuff, uh, both in terms of our strategy and international expansion. So we are a fintech platform for global businesses. We help our customers to get paid, to manage their treasury, and also to send and spend money around the world. Uh, We serve businesses of all sizes, so at the very small end of town, we're we're looking after e-commerce businesses or or digital services or SaaS SaaS platforms, but we're also working with some of the biggest companies in the world. So you can think about Xero or Qantas or, you know, Shein, for example, as some of our more enterprise customers. Uh, We were founded in Australia, and I know we'll talk about that probably a bit later on today, uh, but we're now a very global company uh, with 1,300 people around the world, uh, 19 offices, uh, doing roughly $50 billion annualized in in volume, but growing uh, well north of 100% year over year, and so still in a very, very rapid phase of our expansion. Fantastic. Right, let's jump in. Um, So, yeah, as you said, you guys were founded in Australia, um, and this is our APAC focus episode. Um, and, you know, payments in APAC and around the world has been growing massively over the last few years. It'd be great to talk a little bit about what gap in the market Airwallex founders see um, and how they approached it in that founding story. Yeah, so anyone who's been to Melbourne, and maybe a few people who haven't, will know that people in Melbourne take coffee incredibly seriously. And coffee is actually the origin of, of Airwallex. Uh, so the, the founding story of this company is that our co-founders were operating a coffee shop. Uh, it's called Tuck & Co. It's actually still going uh, in Melbourne by, um, by Docklands. It's actually quite nice. And in the process of setting up that coffee shop, they realized just how painful it was to try and manage uh, their money around the world. And so you can imagine if you're running a coffee shop, you need to buy beans probably from you know, Latin America. You need to buy cups. You know, maybe you're buying them from, from Asia somewhere. Um, you probably need to you know, buy other things and, and, and send money in, in, into other parts of the world. And so as they were doing that, they were wrestling with Western Union and banks and all the other legacy financial institutions that exist to move money around the world. And they realized this is really, really painful. 
And so Jack, who's our CEO now and, and one of our co-founders, his background was actually previously uh, as, a, as an engineer and a, and, a, and a product person working within uh, FX trading uh, arms of investment banks. And so he worked for some of the bigger investment banks, the Australian ones and also global ones, helping them to build their FX engines and FX capabilities. And so the combination of that lived experience as coffee entrepreneurs and the, the background that, that Jack had in the world of cross-border money movement made them think, hey, there's actually a better way to, to tackle this problem for modern global businesses. And so that was really the, the kernel of the idea or the bean of the idea, if you'll excuse the pun, uh, that gave, you know, gave birth to, to Airwallex. And I think that theme has really been a recurrent one as we've uh, grown and expanded around the world, which is that you know, moving money, managing money across borders is incredibly complicated. You have to deal with a myriad of different regulations of local preferences for, you know, payment schemes or payment methods of, you know, licensing requirements. And so all of that complexity compounds. And it, and it means if you're not a specialist in, in the field as, as, a, as a business, even as a very large enterprise, you know, even as a, a Qantas or, or a Zero or whoever, you can very quickly get lost. And so Airwallex is, is basically here to cut through that and to make it easy, transparent, and cost-effective for, for businesses to be able to manage and move their money around the world. And I imagine each country, you know, within APAC and in fact around the world has its own complexities. And so it must be an extremely complex thing to scale a business. I'd love to talk a little bit about, you know, maybe the one thing listeners should know about Airwallex's growth from Australia into APAC and and across into into EMEA. I think probably the one thing is just that it's been really fast. Um, so we're a, we're a company that was born just around seven years ago. Um, we really spent the first couple of years of our life uh, building some of the infrastructure. Um, so we're really an infrastructure product at heart. And infrastructure for us means licenses. It means integrations with schemes, you know, with, with, with banks and also with, uh, you know, with, with rails directly as well in some cases. And so we spent the first couple of years just building out some of that infrastructure layer around the world. Um, and then in the last three or four years, we've gone from not much to $200 million plus in, in annualized revenue. And as I mentioned, $50 billion of, of volume and growing very, very quickly. And so that, you know, that is probably the key thing, which is we've really, really, really built something quickly. Um, and uh, we've built that from Australia, but now across APAC, you know, into EMEA, which is the part of the business that I'm responsible for, um, and also into the Americas now as well, where we're seeing more and more success um, serving some massive companies, you know, the likes of Navan, you know, formerly Trip Actions, just being, just being one example. That's phenomenal growth. Um, on our panel discussion show, we were talking to Revolut and, and Utrip about how interconnected travel money movement and financial services are in APAC. What, what's your or Airwallex's view on the complexities of global money movement? I mean, you, you, you began to allude to it there. Yeah. I, um, so I'm a historian by background. So I was actually a classicist at university. I, I did Latin and Greek um, and spent probably more time than was economically sensible writing about you know, stuff like financial crisis in the Roman world. And the reason I tell you that is because I really love to put the work that we are doing into historical context. And so when I think about, you know, what is it that we're really doing? Fundamentally, we're trying to solve a problem that everybody who's done business across borders has experienced going all the way back to the Egyptians, to the Romans, to the Medicis, to whoever, which is exactly what we were talking about a minute ago, which is in different countries, there are different regulatory regimes, different compliance regimes that you have to be able to navigate. 
customers prefer to pay in different ways. Um, so, you know, you look at Europe, for example, there are a bunch of bank to bank mechanisms that are prevalent in, in, in Benelux that just don't exist elsewhere. So ideal, so forth, etc. You know, people aren't using those in France or in the UK, for example. People use different currencies. You know, they, they, they acquire or they collect money in different currencies. They want to pay money in different currencies. And so the combination of all of those things means that it is incredibly difficult for non-specialists to navigate that environment. And the reality for, for most businesses is that their core business is selling, you know, sneakers, for example, or, or you know, selling advertising or whatever it may well be. And the, the whole managing their money bit of it is a kind of ancillary part that is more of a pain than, than an area of, you know, joy for them as, as business owners, operators or executives. And so... I think, you know, the interesting thing for us as a, as a business coming out of APAC into, into EMEA, into the US, is that we've been born in a region which is incredibly heterogeneous. And so, you know, you look at APAC as a region, it's not, APAC is a kind of meaning, meaningless acronym, because in reality, you've got all the different countries which all have their own local preferences, local currencies, you know, different super apps, whether you're looking at Grab or, or WeChat or whatever, with, you know, different behaviors that consumers and businesses are adopting around them. And so for us, our, our kind of key thing is we've come out of an environment where we recognize and understand how important it is to be local, which means when we come to somewhere like EMEA, which is my patch, we're not thinking about you know, EMEA as a region, we're thinking about the UK or Israel or the Netherlands and trying to, to develop solutions and products for our customers that reflect their more local requirements rather than some kind of a generic view of, of what customers in Europe may need. And it feels like that gives you a unique perspective, you know, going from a part of the world that is extremely complex to a part of the world. Would you say um, EMEA, I mean, as, a, as an individual market or as a homogenous whole, is more complex than APAC or simpler in some ways? Uh, I, think it's, I think it's very different. So there are a couple of things. One is from a regulatory perspective, there's probably a little bit more harmonization across um, the UK and Europe, certainly, than there is across um, the Asian uh, you know, sphere of, of operations. Clearly language, um, you know, we have a number of different languages across Europe, but English is kind of a lingua franca that you can generally do business in, particularly in the startup world, most people will be able to do business in English quite well. Um, in Asia, there are really some quite significant variations. Of course, you know, you can do English in Australia, Singapore, Hong Kong, but if you want to start doing business in China or Japan or elsewhere, suddenly actually you need to be able to do things in, in Mandarin or Japanese or, or Thai or, or, or whatever. Um, I think, you know, we don't really have the, the super apps that, that Asia does in the UK and Europe to the same extent. Um, so, of course, you know, you have some of the neobanks, the, the revolutes and so on of the world trying to create those ecosystems, but they are an order of magnitude less uh, all encompassing than what you see with Grab or, or, or WeChat or, or Ali or whatever, where everything has kind of come into that ecosystem and you can do everything from booking taxis to buying cinema tickets to managing your money in, in a single, you know, single experience. So I think I, I wouldn't stretch the similarities too far, um, but I would say definitely the key point is that if you've come from a place where it's really important to be local and to recognize the specificities, that helps you to perhaps take a slightly more nuanced approach to entering the European markets than someone who's come from America where it's, you know, one big domestic uh, domestic market, albeit with state-by-state state differences, 
then coming across to Europe and thinking about it as rest of world, you know, and just assuming that you can do the same thing and, and it will work just as well. It'd be good to talk a little bit about the pandemic. And the, the reason why I'm raising this is because if you look at your meteoric growth over the last few years, I mean, you know, at least two of those years have been during a pandemic, a global pandemic. And I think as we all know that some of the harshest lockdowns and restrictions were happening in various countries across APAC. You look at places like Hong Kong, Singapore. I mean, for goodness sakes, Australia was completely isolated and, and uh, locked down for a very, very long time. You know, with, with you sitting in EMEA and as a global business, did you feel any impact um, in the UK and Europe because of what was happening um, in APAC and did you see maybe some of those restrictions as a as a stress test of of growth in uh, in the twenty twenties? Well, you know what, we actually grew exponentially during those two years, and so to the extent we saw an impact in the UK and, and Europe during that period, it was actually here's a business that's growing, you know, massively in the Asian region. Uh, that gives us the ability to invest. It gives us brilliant investors that have come on board during that that period, and it gives us a whole bunch of customers who are looking to, you know, expand their businesses around the world and use our infrastructure everywhere. And so, I don't think we saw a negative impact at, at all. Um, I do think you know, part of that is because the book of business that we have is is actually quite broad and covers a number of sectors, some of whom were more negatively impacted and others of whom were more positively impacted during that period. So, for example, we do a lot in, in e-commerce. So, as I mentioned, we work with businesses like Shein, um, you know, Goat, the, the, the sneakers marketplace, um, you know, plus, plus, plus. And everybody, I think, will know that during that couple of years, e-com businesses were massively benefited uh, because people moved to shopping online. People, you know, didn't have necessarily the ability to go and uh, go in store and, and do things. And so that part of our book grew massively. You know, perhaps during that time, some of the more travel businesses were were a little bit slower. So, you know, you look at um, a Qantas, for example, of course, during that period, they were doing a little bit less, um, you know, business than than they are now. And so you get that kind of balancing effect across an entire portfolio of businesses where um, where some sort of benefit from a particular moment in the macroeconomy uh, macroeconomic situation, and others, you know, have a have a kind of countervailing impact. So I think net net, it was a period of huge growth for us, um, and actually coming out of it, you know, even where we have seen perhaps a slightly slower growth in the e-com sector globally, we've seen a whole bunch of other sectors who have picked up and you know continue to power our, our growth and expansion. And is there anything you you would say that um, you know fintechs or financial institutions in the European market can almost learn from some of the challenges and growth that you have faced in in APAC um, amidst the extremely strict lockdowns, remote teams, et cetera, et cetera? So I think one of the things that's been most interesting for me joining Airwallex uh, is that I've come from I came from GoCardless. I spent you know, nearly five years at GoCardless. Uh, GoCardless is, is also a global business, but it's a much more UK and Western European oriented business. And so, you know, GoCardless, our leadership group was mostly in London. Um, the decision making was mostly in London. Uh, to the extent that we had folks around the world, they tended to be go to market satellites rather than, you know, full offices and full regional um, regional hubs. We as Airwallex are a very distributed company. And so when you look at our exec team, you know, I sit in London, I have a colleague who sits in, in San Francisco, we have folks in Melbourne, we have folks in Singapore, we have folks in Hong Kong. And so we operate in a very distributed way. And that operating model has enabled us to be pretty 
pretty lean, but also pretty agile when it comes to adapting to the situations that, you know, that the business faces. And I think that's one thing that I think is quite different from many of the European you know, businesses that I see where mostly their exec teams and their leadership groups sit within a single office or, or a couple of offices at most. At most, they're probably one or two time zones apart. And so obviously that has some big benefits in the sense that, you know, you have that togetherness, you have that um, ability to, to hang out with one another. But I think it may also detract from your ability to be really local and build, you know, really local businesses around the world. And so, you know, for me, uh, you know, I, I have the benefit of having obviously lots of go-to-market folks in, in EMEA, but also a legal team, you know, a finance team, a people team, a compliance team. You know, we have engineers in Amsterdam, we have operations people as well. And so with that, I can try and build something which is a truly localized business for the needs of the customers that I'm trying to serve. Um, and so I think that's maybe just one thing that, that um, you know, that we do slightly differently and which I think helps us to, to try and take a slightly more local approach. That's really interesting. It feels like the idea of the HQ is changing completely and you're driving efficiencies through the distributed model as opposed to the traditional way of looking at it, which would be efficiencies through the, through the centralized model. But as you say, you you cannot have a local and a global business, you know that that particular way. So you have to have some capabilities within market. You you, you were touching earlier on when we were talking about the pandemic about um, you know the growth of e-commerce um, and how you know certain sectors were growing and certain sectors were were shrinking. It'd be good to talk a little bit about customer expectations and how you see that trajectory of growth and where some of those behaviors might be changing over the next few years based on what you're seeing in a and also an APAC. Yeah, so I think, you know, when I look at the adoption of the kinds of products that we offer, uh, so, you know, we're a cloud-based service fundamentally, which is you know, enabling digital money movement around the world. I think about the long-term adoption curve of a product like that. And I think we're now getting past the bit of initial early adopters. So you always have an initial phase where people are kind of dipping their toe in the water and, and starting to try and understand what this new you know, category or this new product can offer. And during that initial phase, the nature of the game is a lot more exploratory. So you're trying to, to learn, you're trying to figure out what's going on. And customers are in the process of educating themselves about what's possible rather than necessarily, you know, being at the point of maturity where they can really deep dive into, you know, what, what the best could be rather than what the, the minimum could be. So when I think about that evolution curve, you know, I think we're coming out of the initial adoption period I don't think we're yet at mass adoption. So I think we're a long way away from the kind of full potential of what this industry could be. But we're entering a phase now where customers are more and more educated about what, you know, what, what good could look like. And so, you know, we certainly see this now. Our customers are, are now more and more attuned to, okay, but not just how are you sending money to this market, but which rails are you using? You know, are you using Fedwire or ACH in the US, for example, you know, they're also asking questions, you know, who are your partner banks? You know, where is my money? And particularly in, you know, in, in light of things like SVB, people are increasingly asking, you know, who are you safeguarding with in the UK and EU, for example? Um, people want transparency and, and clarity on costs. So, you know, you and I will both know this, but one of the reasons why the payments industry has managed to sustain such healthy margins over a long period of time is the fact that cross-border costs are often not shown very transparently. And so people don't know how much it costs them to move money from point A to point B. 
I think our customers and customers in general are increasingly aware of that. And so they're looking for that transparency and clarity about, you know, what can this, you know, what is this actually going to cost me? What could this save me if I were to move away from my current situation? And so that's my, you know, general feeling, which is that now customers are getting more and more um, sophisticated when it comes to the capabilities of cross-border money movement businesses and, and, and kind of financial services in general. They're asking those one level down questions, which, you know, f- for us, we're always happy to answer because we feel our superpower is actually that infrastructure layer. And our superpower is is the fact that, you know, in the US, for example, we have five different sponsor banks or partner banks that we're partnering with. And so we have that redundancy, we have that depth of feature set. Um, but I think some of the the businesses who exist maybe one level up in the in the value chain will find that more and more difficult um, because they won't necessarily have the substance behind the the style. And what would you say are some of the things that Airwallex, I mean, you were touching it on it already, actually, um, is doing to match that maturity because, you know, you guys have been building out your stack very recently, right? It's in the last couple of years, really, that the growth has has exploded the way it has. So you, you may well be right on the forefront of matching some of these new behaviors. In fact, even generating some of these behaviors yourselves. Yeah, so I think the first thing is, from a product perspective, you've got to be as close to the metal as you possibly can be. And um, Jack, you know, my boss, our CEO, is incredibly passionate about that um, himself. And so from the very beginning, his approach has always been, we need to go and get licenses. You know, we need to be a principal acquirer. We need to be a principal issuer. You know, we need to be as close to the metal as we're able to be so that, you know, we have the ability to be deep and we can talk to our customers about the, the kind of feature depth and feature requirements that they have because we're close enough then. And also, frankly, because the economics work much better if you are closer to the to the metal. I think the other thing is is also about the the way that you educate customers about what it is that your product can can really do. And so, you know, for us, for example, you know, the last year or so, people have been talking more and more about Swift. Um, I think Swift sort of finally uh, crossed the chasm like 50 years after it was invented because of the action that uh, that the, the West took against Russia, um, you know, in the initial waves of sanctions. And so suddenly you had all these explainer articles in, in, in the newspaper saying, what is Swift? You know, how does it work? And so for us, you know, it's also being able to say to people, look, you know, you're just finding out about Swift. Let's blow your mind. 94% of the payments that we do actually go through local rails on both sides so they don't touch Swift. And so people are like, okay, wow, you know, get it. And so, you know, partly it's for a product perspective of cool, how do we, you know, how do we really push ourselves to get deep? And then partly it's an education, you know, question, which is how do you make sure that you're telling people always, you know, hey, this is this is what we can really do. And this is the value critically that we add uh, for you by doing that. And on the flip side of that, I guess, like what what would you say are the main challenges or issues that you you would be tackling right now in your growth? I think the first and biggest one is always that there is so much to do and not enough time and never enough resource to do it. And so, you know, when you think about our product roadmap for the for the coming year, the number one starred priority is infrastructure. And so we are constantly looking to build out our infra capabilities, you know, looking both geographically. So, for example, expanding into LATAM or expanding into the Middle East, um, looking at, you know, additional features and functionality, you know, including like credit, for example, and doing things, you know, that that expand what we already have in in ways that our customers are excited about. And so the hardest thing is always making those trade-off 
decisions about, you know, do we, you know, do we expand in the Middle East? Do we do Japan? Do we do this? Whatever. And, um, you know, in, in an environment where the other big challenge is around how do we make sure we're building not just a business that grows very quickly, but also a business that's going to be long-term sustainable, the question about prioritization becomes even harder because, you know, two, three years ago in a different you know environment from a funding perspective, you might have just been able to say, whatever, we'll just burn another, you know, X million dollars by hiring another X product teams to do this work. In today's you know, environment and, and given where we are as a business we don't want to make those choices. We want to be able to say, hey, you know, we're making some pretty pretty important decisions from a product perspective. We're doing that in a way that allows us to be sustainable um, and cash flow positive as, as a business as well. Um, and that um, that's, why, uh, that's, that's why they pay Jack the big bucks to help us to make those decisions. Yeah, the entire industry is facing into the same challenges, I guess. So, you know, it has been a tumultuous 2022 um, after a couple of years of rapid growth during COVID, as you say. You know, what what are your thoughts or outlook specifically for 2023? Are you seeing any signs of positivity in the uh, in the funding market or in the industry in general? And and if so, where where would that be? So we um, we're very fortunate. Uh, we raised at uh, five and a half billion back in 2021, and we actually raised a small top up um, in 2022 in November from new investors at the same valuation on the same terms, um, which is just about as good as I think you can do in in the current environment. Um, and given all the challenges that they've been both for private and publicly listed uh, businesses in our space. And so we are very fortunate to enter 2023 with a very robust balance sheet and and, and lots and lots of uh, of room to continue to invest. I think when we look at um, the investment landscape, you know, f- clearly people are taking a long, hard look at some of the earlier stage businesses uh, in in the market. You know, the Series A, B, C businesses, I think, are, are finding it harder and harder to you know, continue that lovely escalator of up rounds every six, 12 months that, that perhaps they got used to, to doing. But we also see lots of investors who still maintain the same fundamental belief in the market opportunity and the potential of our products and our services. And I say R in the general sense of fintech rather than ours as Airwallex, um, to transform the way that people do business and, and also, frankly, for consumers as well, you know, live their lives. And so, you know, we do see that optimism. We do see people continuing to want to invest in, in category creating, category defining businesses. But I do think, you know, the change has been number one, more and more focus on who actually owns the infrastructure. So, you know, businesses who have that defensibility and have that moat are more attractive. And then number two is how do you actually make sure that you you grow with sustainable unit economics in, in a way that means that you can continue to expand sustainably versus constantly needing to re-up and 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 kind of need that sugar hit of, of VC investment. And that's got to be a positive thing, I guess, in the uh, in the long term for the industry for it to be sustainable and profitable. I mean, it, would you would you say there is a lesson or couple of lessons that um, you've learned in the last year or so, or, or maybe that the the industry as a whole has has learned? Honestly, I think the most important thing is something that I sort of briefly alluded to a minute ago, which is that when you build products, you have to build products that create value for customers. And the value has to be something that they understand and that links to a pain that they feel or that they can understand when you explain it to them. And I think for those of us in fintech, it's very easy to get excited about, you know, the next big thing that, um, you know, is, is, is cool from a technological perspective. And you can sometimes forget that we live in, in a world where 
the actual mass adoption of those products can be a very, very long time in the future. Um, so it always, I'm based in London ordinarily, and it always blows my mind that I think it's only about three years ago that debit cards jumped over cash as the predominant payment method in the UK. Um, and that was kind of around the time of the pandemic as well, where people were worried that touching cash might might end up, you know, resulting in them catching catching COVID. And so I think it's important to have that you know, historical context in mind as you're building, which is, you know, you're building because you believe in the long term potential. But in order to realize that long term potential, you need to be able to talk to customers about real value and real pain that they are feeling. Um, and I think for us, we're very fortunate because that pain is something that people either know about and, and understand right now or with some very basic explanation will quickly grasp. Um, but I do think there are, there are certainly some areas of fintech where perhaps that hasn't been quite so much of a focus, um, and perhaps it will have to be uh, going forward. You're right. The the idea that, you know, if we build it, people will come, I suppose, is is something that has been, I would say, a negative in the industry of the last few years. And it's good to see uh, a driving of more customer centricity. I think the other thing that you said about, you know, the rapid changes about from cash to debit cards, it takes time for some of these behaviors to bed in, right? It takes it takes sometimes a long time and sometimes it might actually change. So really genuinely knowing or being able to predict where some of these behaviors are going to be in the long term is is absolutely critical. And and I think that sort of draws us perhaps to the last question, which is to talk a little bit about the longer term plans for AirWallex or even what's next for you guys. I mean, look, what's next is we have a very clear goal. You know, our, our vision is basically to reinvent the way that people do business across borders. And and so the, you know, that's what we're working to. In the near term, it's all about, number one, expanding the set of products that we're able to offer our customers, both from a geographical coverage point of view, but also from a you know, product capability perspective. Um, and, you know, I mentioned a couple of areas, Middle East and, and LATAM as infrastructure focuses. Um, you know, we're looking increasingly at things like yield products, credit, you know, a bunch of additional things that just reinforce and, and fit nicely with the, the value proposition that we already have. Um, geographical expansion is and will continue to be a big focus for us. Uh, we're very fortunate to be in a position where we're still able to hire for hundreds of roles around the world. Um, we're doing that in, in EMEA. We're doing that in the Americas. You know, we see a lot of opportunity in both of those markets uh, to continue to build really interesting and, 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 and scalable businesses. And then also, I think, you know, for us as a, as a business, it's also about maturing and finding the operating model that will allow us to to, to kind of operate and, and scale in the way that we want to. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we've grown really fast, really quickly. And um, that's amazing, but it also throws up a bunch of challenges because it means that, you know, you haven't necessarily had the time to be able to create all of the right structures and processes that you want, um, you know, for the longer term. And so that's also a big focus for us. And whether it's, you know, in the people and talent area, whether it's in our operating teams, like just creating that scalability so that we have that roadmap in place to be able to build the kind of business that, you know, we all think as, as part of our leadership group that we, we absolutely can. And it all started from coffee. Um, you know, what a story. I mean, coffee has been at the center of global trade for so many centuries, right? So I, I love that tie-in with that and your background in, in classics and history. Um, and on that note, that wraps up this edition of Fintech Insider Focus in association with Visa. Thank you so much for joining me, Pranav. Where can people find out more about you and AirWallex? So airwallex.com and I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not particularly good on, on Twitter or, or any of the other socials. So, so those two places, please. Brilliant. And you can find me on LinkedIn at DavidBG and all across 11FS. 
Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others find the show. For more on this discussion, look out for the next episode of Fintech Insider Focus in two weeks' time. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.